Hello, and welcome to Unapologetic Sex with DG. I am DG, I am your host, I am a sexual health and relationship coach, I am a sex worker, and I am someone who is in love with doing this podcast, and I am so grateful you're here listening. Today, we are on episode 7, can you believe it? I, I am so excited, and especially since I've been going through a particularly rough time. Um, I had three deaths in the first month of the year, so being able to do this podcast has given me a way to share my love and my passion and express myself in a way that I haven't been able to before. And I want to thank you all for listening and I hope you'll take a minute to leave a review on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. If you can leave a five-star rating, I would be very grateful. Um, I also wanted to take a minute to tell you guys I am offering my sexual health coaching again. I do one-on-one coaching and I have three different price points. If you just want to reach out to me on Instagram at Unapologetic Sex with DG. I would love to talk to you and help you out. Um, I specialize in polyamory sex work. I specialize in kink and BDSM. If this is anything that resonates with you, I am glad to be there for you and I am glad to help you live your life unapologetically. That is my goal. Let's get back to what episode seven is about and that is my interview with Orphany Sicarius. They are absolutely amazing. They are a sexual assault nurse examiner. They are the resident bog witch of Philadelphia, an educator of sexual health topics, and they are also a demisexual who is polyamorous. And since this month, if you follow me on Instagram, you will know I'm devoting this month to ethical non-monogamy and that falls under the umbrella of polyamorous. So we are definitely excited to be talking to Orphney about that. But with everything else that she's telling us in this interview, it is so worth it to stay till the end because all the information she gives us, it is from a perspective of someone who not only works in the health education center, but someone who works with those who have been sexually assaulted and those who are going through more difficult times, those who are houseless. And the intersectionality of this conversation is absolutely gorgeous. And I would love to hear what you think of this episode. Um, We touch on a lot of sensitive subjects, so I am prefacing this episode with a trigger warning. We talk about sexual assault. We talk about... STIs, we talk about cheating, we talk about a lot of sensitive topics. So just wanted to give you a warning. I do hope you'll listen and I hope you'll leave me a review because I am so happy to have you guys here with me today or tonight or whenever you're listening to this. I am just very excited. So let's get into this and let me welcome you to Unapologetic Sex with DG. Let's get into it. Hello, everyone. I am DG, and this is the Unapologetic Sex with DG podcast. I want to introduce you guys to today's guest, Orphney Sicarius. Yes, Sicarius. <laughs> you nailed it. All right. Awesome. Yay. I always feel very good when I when I can get it done. So if you could just introduce yourself to us, just your name, your pronouns, and your favorite thing about sex. Oh, boy. Okay. So my name is Orphney. Um, my pronouns are she and they. I love a blend of the two. Um, and my favorite thing about sex is... Golly. Oh, no. Uh, (laughs) um, I want to say probably something really cheesy about the um, relaxation that it can provide. It's a nice release. That is beautiful. 
and you are absolutely wonderful. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and that is not cheesy at all. It's not cheesy at all. There is something to be said about sex being relaxing and releasing and just all of that. It's, and I mean, it, it's not cheesy. It's something most people don't actually like think about is using sex as stress relief. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that and also about a little bit more about yourself and what you do? Sure. So, I mean, not that we ever want to use sex as an obligate coping mechanism, because that can go super sour super quickly. Mm -hmm. um, but just a lot of the physical and hormonal aspects of physical stimulation, emotional connection, um, in whatever way that means to you in your intercourse or foreplay or anything else like that. Um, it can offer a lot of meditative value, um, a lot of just physical well-being stuff in general, um, whether that's yourself with a partner, with multiple partners, um, just many different ways to connect with yourself and others in a super restorative way. So a little bit more about myself. I'm a demisexual, demiromantic pan everything polyamorous individual uh roughing it out in the east coast here um as the resident bog witch of north philadelphia i work for an entity that i don't have permission to disclose <laughs> um, but i work as a forensic examiner of uh, patients who have been traumatized in sexually traumatic ways. And when I'm not doing clinical care in that regard or community outreach, uh, then I also work as an educator for both uh, victim-oriented and sexual health topics. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. That is absolutely beautiful holy crap that is absolutely beautiful oh, thank um, you. <laughs> like the work you're doing sounds amazing and your lifestyle sounds beautiful like all of it I love it I love it the goth witch of North Philadelphia I gotta remember <laughs> that one and that is that is amazing and Philly's my old home I miss Philly so much we miss you too <laughs> I'm planning a trip eventually. It'll it'll happen. It'll happen. I'll let you know. I'll definitely let you know when it does happen. Yes. But um <laughs> I do want to get back to like our conversation because this is beautiful and I'm trying to figure out which point I want to step on first because you sure. brought up a lot in that in that little that little talk you brought up so much so so you're demisexual and demiromantic can yes. you go a little bit more on demiromantic so demiromantic falls under the aromantic scale um compared to alloromanticism which is somebody who just inherently has the capacity or the desire to have uh, romantic connections. Um, so I am somebody who, I, I, I guess the best way I can phrase it is that I, I take a little bit longer to stew um, before opening up and blossoming into that full-on romantic engagement. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not somebody who needs to have a romantic attachment to someone in order to have a valuable platonic or um, partnership in general, also a, a sexual attraction when that does happen. Because again, I'm under the gray scale, the A scale for sexuality too is Demi. Um, so I don't need romantic connections in order to have a, a meaningful engagement. That doesn't mean that I don't love. Uh, love comes in so, so many different forms, um, but just the romantic type of love is something that for me personally is not an instant aha moment when I'm connecting with folks. That's a, a, a very small <laughs> definition of how that relates to me. And I know that that is a, a huge variable, not on a linear scale, but more of like a big 
gelatinous cube of asexuality or aromanticism in general. So please take that with a, a grain of salt. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. You're hitting all the points right there because anything with sexuality and gender identity and romantic purview, it's all individualized. And that is absolutely beautiful with, with your own point of view on that. I think that's absolutely beautiful. Well, thank you. Um, you're welcome. And um, I fall under those scales too. So I completely get it. So I, I'm currently right now in the questioning phase of many, many things in my life. So those are included. And that's just like, I think great for our listeners to hear is another perspective on it. So I do want to address the other thing, because I feel like it's kind of become the elephant in the room. And that is your work. Oh, my work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because when you were talking about it, you sound so impassioned and you sound like, I, I appreciate the entity not being named. We will not name it. I actually have zero idea who it is, so it doesn't even matter. Um, I'll clue you in later. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that. You'll, you'll let me know after. Uh, what I wanted to, and also this falls into your education aspect, is your work with trauma victims. This is like, this is really personal for me because I am a like survivor of rape trauma and I have a narcissistic ex and all of that. And it's just like knowing that there's resources on the East coast for people to have access to like your type of care, I feel is so important. So if you could tell us more about your work and what's involved with that, like I would be very grateful. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, my, my official title is I'm a clinical director um, who performs uh, sexual assault nurse examinations, um, largely with a focus on individuals who have been acutely traumatized. So not so much a chronic ongoing um, incident like we see very often with um, individuals who are dependent of care or who are very young. Um, my target population are generally adult individuals of all genders, all sexualities. Um, They could be your very wealthy, very affluent, upper middle-class white college student, or they could be somebody who is brand spanking new to the United States and has compromised citizenship, somebody who has unstable housing, um, sex workers, just many, many, many different flavors of people and just as many different flavors of humans that exist, so too does the variety of trauma that can happen to folks. So my uh, role is that I am able to have a direct clinical interface with um, trauma survivors who generally within a uh, five-day window of having been assaulted, Um, I can do a head-to-toe examination for any traumatic injuries with appropriate referral for orthopedic care, GYN care, otherwise. Um, And I can also provide post-exposure prophylactic medications to help protect their bodies from uh, sexually transmitted infections, including HIV, uh, which we can also, in our clinical setting, kickstart a lot of the big hairy blood work that goes into initiating that type of care. We offer pregnancy prophylaxis in the form of plan B1 step. And I'm trying to think uh, some certain types of boosters. uh, So like hepatitis vaccines, tetanus vaccines, we can offer as well. And that's one part of it. So our number one goal is always connecting with the patient and making sure that their physical and emotional needs are being met in a trauma-informed and patient-centered way. And a little bit of a cohort to that is I can also, in that moment, immediately refer patients to housing resources, um, advocacy resources, if they need to have 
an advocate present in the room to hold their hand through the clinical examination, if they need an advocate to be present in the event that law enforcement interviewing is warranted and the patient is looking to participate in that type of conversation, as well as courtroom accompaniment, should they ever get to the point in their experience that the investigation turns into a prosecutorial opportunity because all of these different things, as much as I like to help people and try to make them feel as safe as I can, it's still good to have that extra person in the room. So again, I don't have permission to disclose who that cohort collaborator is, but we have all of those resources available and um, with total language line capacity and everything else for total inclusionary care of anyone who is not English proficient or not verbal or otherwise. The other part of my job is I can collect evidence for investigation and prosecution. I'm not immediately affiliated with law enforcement. It's the hairiest part of my job that I am the most critical about for many reasons that are not appropriate to necessarily talk about today. But with that evidence, you know, I can collect a narrative that is largely authored by that patient in their own words. We can help them engage with law enforcement by me providing a report indirectly for that patient should they choose to be anonymous. I, at some point in my career, end up getting subpoenaed to go to court either as a fact witness for these patient engagements or as an expert witness where inevitably there's always some attorney who calls me at like nine o'clock at night, like, hey there, Orphany, uh, hope you're not busy. I just need to know, what do you know about latent syphilis and how that's detected? Sometimes I get drawn into court literally just to word vomit about everything I know about syphilis. So that's the wombo combo is clinical and legal forensic interfacing. <laughs> Holy crap. Okay, that's a lot to process. Sorry, it's probably too, too much info. <laughs> no, no, it's, that's, that's not what I mean at all. <laughs> okay. No, that is absolutely beautiful. And like there, there are couple things. I'm just like letting my brain process everything you just said. And I'm just like, part of me wants you to go back and explain your harried situation, (laughs) the law enforcement, because this is called unapologetic sex with CG. The the underlying message is living life unapologetically. So I want you to do that here now. Say whatever you need to say about anything, about anything you just (laughs) mentioned. Like this is, this is the whole point is the whole point. And like, I I wasn't originally going to do this, but I just have this feeling you really want to say why it's a harried relationship with the police. And I want to hear it. Well, I think a lot of folks, you know, with especially, you know, and I mean, not that this was never an issue, but with the advent of social media and a lot more connectedness across state lines and a lot of outreach education available to folks, a lot of people are more familiar with the pitfalls of the criminal justice system on a more casual interface, which is from an academic point of view, I think mind-blowing and awesome, but also devastating that it's a thing to begin with. Um, But particularly working in sex crimes, um, interfacing with any law enforcement department when it comes to crimes of intimate nature, um, it's kind of hit or miss depending on which officer, what level of officer it is that the client or the patient is interfacing with. So part of my job is also talking to law enforcement about essentially how to not be assholes when talking to somebody who is alleging a sexual crime. So patrol officers as kind of like the bottom of the totem pole, they have the least amount of trauma-informed preparedness, if that makes sense, because they're a, a bit of jack of all trades in that sense. 
And I personally don't get to interface with them a lot, but my patients do because they're the ones who are the first responders. So getting to talk to them about lethality assessment, when somebody calls 911 and they have an officer come to the house, how can we motivate law enforcement officers to really take these situations seriously and not just as a quote unquote personal matter to be resolved, having them take into considerations what the patient might be physically going through on top of emotionally, because they tend to be a little bit more tangential with the physical aspect of things. Um, mm-hmm. As much as we'd like our, our law enforcement to be more empathetic, you know, mm-hmm. that's a whole other (laughs) discussion of recruitment and training and everything else like that. But then the detectives that we work with are the people who usually have that greater degree of formal post-secondary education with a focus on sex crimes. And they're familiar with a lot of the vulnerable populations. They're generally the folks that we don't have to handhold to say like, hey, we know that you've had a long shift, but this person really needs some TLC. They're, you know, much less quick to post judgment on patients who are substance dependent, who are housing compromised, non-English proficient or otherwise. And they're usually more equipped with uh, better tools in their toolkit to talk to folks and to encourage Um, individuals to fully disclose um, incidences that happen to them with the dedication of resourcing the patients appropriately to what they need after the fact, whether or not this is moving forward with an investigation. So I do a lot of like roll call training is is what they call it um, for shift specific training with law enforcement with a big focus to the um, patrol officers and talking about patient advocacy in a trauma-informed way, that lethality assessment, like I mentioned before, evidence preservation, all of those good kind of things. And sometimes you get those cops that listen and they're enthusiastic to help. Usually they're the ones who have that personal attachment to either trauma on their own or trauma from the first degree, whether that's a family member or otherwise. And then sometimes you get the folks who are just not having it. They think that this is all very silly. It sounds like a he said, she said kind of thing. And I'm like, listen, it's not my job to determine this. It's not your job to determine that. This person's asking for help. So here are the resources to help this person because that's what you're here to do, right? Protect and serve. Time to serve. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I am so glad I let you say that. <laughs> gave you the platform to say all that because I feel like we as a society need to hear that. Like, yes. I really do. And the huge thing I got from that is the lack of education that most officers have and just the lack of education that the public has and everything. And you know what? That is the perfect segue to my next question, which is you you mentioned being an educator and this, this falls in line with everything that we've been talking about so far. As an educator, what is one of the things that you wish people knew more about with like either sexual education or trauma-informed care or both that you wish was just more known by the public? Um, From the trauma-informed care perspective, I wish that folks could have a little bit more outreach access in regards to the process of not only, you know, the clinical interface like what I do. Um, A lot of people don't know that what I do isn't just a rape kit collection, that there's also clinical care tied to that. And that's our priority, whether or not that patient agrees to have evidence collected or anything like that. You know, we had one patient who came to us after being bounced around by three other area hospitals. And she was just like, I, you know, was discharged with a medical plan uh, to follow up on certain medications and nobody ever gave me a prescription for it. You know, I don't, I don't really know what to do because it's now been four days and 
I'm running out of this medication. So um, I was able to work with that patient and at least get enough clinical consultation time in with her that we were successfully able to, after the fact, get her the access to the rest of that medication Mm -hmm. regimen, which, you know, especially in STI prophylactic care, if you don't finish an entire antibiotic regimen, you're going to have a rough time. You might get a rebound infection. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. a lot with that. So that's like the other, you know, under the water thing I wish that people knew about was more medical literacy about antibiotics, but that's besides Mm -hmm. the point. But the other thing too, is that a lot of folks don't know that a lot of the resources that are available for housing, financial restitution or compensation, um, prescription plans. A lot of these things are available. You just have to know where to find this information. Like mm-hmm. the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania has the Pennsylvania Coalition on Crimes and Delinquency, which offers victim compensation on a case-by-case application up to $35,000 per case. It requires a report to have been made to the state for itemized loss that's not covered by insurance within three days of the incident happening. And the other downside to it is that there has to be a law enforcement report tied into that. But sometimes that's the motivator when people are like, well, the cops aren't going to get me X, Y, and Z back. And I'm like, well, they won't directly, but you unfortunately are in a position that if you do collaborate with them, a million different doors will open up. Is that me being pro-cop? No, it's just me trying to help people make more informed decisions about these interfaces. So that's something that I really wish that people had more information about because I feel like a lot of the outreach information about victim resources is really gridlocked into the providers Mm -hmm. who are not actually going into the community and giving this to lay persons. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's really (laughs) what I what I wish people would know more about but until we can bridge that connection between the service providers and the actual community that's a whole other ball game yeah yeah we'll we'll probably address that on another episode or something that that is so important and everything you're saying is beautiful and holy crap it's so important like holy fuck it's so important because this is information I didn't even know like I I had no idea about half of the things you mentioned like no idea and I'm betting you in every single state and most cities there's probably outreach programs like this and and most so they come in so many different flavors for specific types of crime too so not even just sexual trauma like I handle in my neck of the woods but domestic or interpersonal violence um, without sexual engagement there's like entire agencies especially designated for that or um, crimes against the elderly like financial fraud especially that is huge, um, Mm -hmm. huge, huge, huge. That's the other thing I wish people would know is just make friends with the elderly. Um, Even if it's just playing bridge at the library every once in a while, Mm because that keeps them engaged and oriented to realistic community connections and not falling for like Prince Smith on Gmail, who's offering a $1 million inheritance if they just send them all their identifying information first. So, yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. You got, a, you got a very good point there. You got a very good point. <laughs> and yeah, they, they deserve respect and dignity too. Like elderly definitely do. And even just older adults do. Um, it's definitely a part of the population most people don't think about is the elderly. And that just makes me think of the fact, like I used to be a nurse. So this is just some random information. I remember when I was a nurse is that the highest rate of STDs are actually from the ages of 40 to 75. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And most people wouldn't think that, but it's like, how horny are you in your 20s and 30s? Imagine not having to worry about birth control. Yes. <laughs> I, I read a study that was, I mean, entirely subjective or qualitative in its, in its data collection, where it was talking to 
postmenopausal women over the age of 65. And mm-hmm. I, I'm going to have to track it down and find it somewhere because this is years old at this point and no longer scientifically relevant. <laughs> um, but they were just like, you know, basically like, yeah, I'm postmenopausal, so I cannot easily get pregnant anymore. So, hey, <laughs> so, and, and just, I think a lot of it also comes from that, hey, I've made it this far in my life without trying X, Y, or Z. I've only got so much finite time left. Let's mm-hmm. go. I don't know if you've ever heard of the it's like Disney swingers or something. I'm not a Disney person. I I wish I could have that kind of fantasy engagement. I just, for some reason, don't dig Disney specifically, but their theme parks. So Disneyland and Disney World, at least here in the United States, there's like a counterculture within the people who own timeshares there, who are, of course, typically individuals at least of retirement age, um, and they advertise themselves. It had something to do with like something on the hood of their car as advertising as open or swinging or something like that, only as couples parallel to each other, only separately. I was like, what's going on, Disney? <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. No, I, I never heard of that before. That is definitely something I will look into. And when I find it, I'll leave a link in the description for my Disney swingers. Um, Cause I bet you, I probably have a few, <laughs> no judgment, no judgment. I'm a huge Disney fan. So I feel that, but I'm not a swinger. I'm not a part of that culture. Um, we are both polyamorous though. Yes. Yeah. Um, so can I get your perspective on polyamory? Sure. So, um, you know, I, I personally use polyamory and uh, ethical non-monogamy interchangeably. Um, so I know that some folks abide by very strict definitions separating the two. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think that any, in, in my personal engagements, all engagements should be ethical but that's just me and my lizard brain. <laughs> um, so I'm, you know, somebody who has a nesting partner. Um, I am somebody who used to have um, another partner, but unfortunately my biggest pitfall was a clash with a metamor. Um, oh. That was absolutely game-breaking for me, a hard stop. I still care tremendously for my ex-partner, but their connection to the meta is just like hard. No, not going to happen. I am somebody who enjoys the concept of kitchen table polyamory, um, where all engagements are an informed kind of way. My ex meta was somebody who had a don't ask, don't tell policy on her part, but she demanded total transparency on the engagements of her partners, which ended up being very unethical um, and a health risk because uh, when asking her questions about STI screening, she said that she doesn't have sex with anyone who's dirty which I was like how could you even say that about somebody with an STI status off the bat first of all period and second of all some of us have comorbid health issues that should we be exposed to certain STIs it's somebody that we need to know for our plan of care Mm -hmm. Um, not to vilify anybody but simply just to take care of our current health status and what we already have going on. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that polyamory is something that is, for lack of better phrasing, very groovy. I think that it is something that in my experience has made me more emotionally intelligent to my own needs, as well as uh, each of my partners Mm -hmm. Um, and being able to, compartmentalize and celebrate those special needs in their own ways. I know it's not for everybody. Um, 
I also know that, you know, being somebody who's on the ace sliding cube of sexuality and romanticism, it's also interesting to see, not that my partners are lab rats, but it's also interesting to see those different dynamics that you can have with different types of love or different types of sexual engagement, if there are sexual engagements involved in that relationship. Mm-hmm. It's just great. I don't know. <laughs> I, I absolutely love that. You got a couple points I want to hit on. We'll see how many I can get in the next like 10 minutes because <laughs> <laughs> we're winding down. We're winding down. So you mentioned a couple things that I definitely want to hit on before the end. And let me see if I can get my brain to f- process because it is the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so don't ask, don't tell. Yes. The DTDT. I, I have so many feelings when you mentioned that in your own situation with that. I like it's a hard no for me too with people who do dtdt it's just oh i made i made an acronym (laughs) dtdt um but yeah don't ask don't ask don't tell is just one of those where to me in my brain it's almost synonymous to cheating i've met this is always my biggest red flag so i am i allowed to mention the name of an app is that okay yes that's okay I tried the app Open, which is a dating app that is specifically for individuals who are polyamorous or ethically non-monogamous. And um, I remember connecting with somebody who was like super great, um, had a lot of interests that were parallel to my own. Physically, I don't really use that as a gauge for attractiveness, but just their personality was was very sweet and endearing, and they seemed like somebody I could get along with. And um, I remember they were like, you know what, like, let's go to an arcade. This is pre-COVID, so <laughs> different world entirely. And I remember I picked out an outfit, and I looked so good and I'm somebody who does not really celebrate self-image very easily and I was so excited and I sent a picture and I didn't hear back from this person for three days and we were supposed to have a date that night and I had followed up with a question of do you know the address to the specific arcade didn't hear anything waited until the next day, still nothing. And I just kind of sent a message just to check in and make sure that they were like safe (laughs) and um, still nothing. And then it turns out uh, I finally get this message that was like, hi, Orphney, I think that you were like such a cool person and I'm so grateful to have met you. Uh, but my wife is not okay with me um, meeting other people. And we have a lot of things to work on. So, you know, stay in touch, have a nice day. So it turns out that this person was poly and their partner had no idea um, that they were poly, nor were they in a place to accept new partners in any capacity. And I was just like, you know, the whole don't ask, don't tell thing, like you said, just really reads as cheating. And there were just so many things that go into your own needs as a partner, while being cognizant of your primary or your nesting or whatever hierarchy you have, if you have a hierarchy with your almost of parents, (laughs) (laughs) with your partners. Yeah, Um, yeah. And it just made me feel so rotten because I was just thinking like this poor woman, you know, just has no idea that this person is committing so much emotional labor and social labor to other people. Mm -hmm. And they're like the last to know. And who's to say like what, I mean, not that I'm coming over and like going to hurt this person but like yeah. this is say what could have happened if there was like a discovery yeah. in a less ideal <laughs> engagement yeah oh my god yeah and y- you're so right you're so right and that's that's one thing I'm very very I vet people when I'm on apps yeah like, I have vetting questions 
And then like, if I see they have other partners, I usually reach out to the other partners to be sure. Cause I have been in instances where I've met someone online and not only are they seeing somebody else, but the other person has no idea they're on this app stating they're polyamorous. Yeah. And that sounds like what you went through with that person. And I am so sorry. That is disturbing. It's, it's sad. It's kind of sad, honestly, like this person couldn't be honest with their wife about what their needs are. Right. Like not being honest with the person that they're trying to engage with or what else are you lying about? (laughs) There's usually a lot more. Yes. My experience. So But yeah, thank you for sharing that. That is absolutely amazing that you came out the other side okay. And that like that person just, I I wish that person the best life they can live. And I want you to just keep getting better and better and better because you deserve the best people in your life. Like you you don't need someone doing that to you. Like, holy crap, the wife doesn't and you don't. (laughs) <laughs> like seriously what's the point what's the point and Polly it's like why don't you the polyam like the thing I've always loved about it is the open honest communication yes a thousand percent yes <laughs> like so when DTDT comes up it's like okay I can't engage with that at, at all because you can't have those o- open and honest conversations is no and <laughs> My, so my ex meta, like the, the amount of like closing in on her activity with other partners, uh, compared to what she would demand her partner to know about my engagements with them. I mean, it wasn't even just information about like, when and where are you folks hanging out? It was like, what do you people do in the bedroom for lack of better phrasing? And so without my consent, this person is aggressively asking our shared partner about very intimate details that I'm like, I don't give this person permission to perceive me in this way. Um, Mm -hmm. It it was awful, but um, so upsetting. And (laughs) what you're saying brings me back to my, I guess, going to be our last point. And that is um, saying dirty for having an STI. Like I'm I'm someone like I've said this before on my podcast is I am someone who has HSV. I have herpes one and two. I'm on daily suppressive treatment and I'm taking weekly lysine. And I'm just like, I, I minimize my exposure to other people as much as possible, but I am also a sex worker and I am polyamorous. So it's something like I, I educate everybody about when it happens. And I hate that word dirty. I it hate was, that word dirty. If you can just like give some SDI education and why yeah. that is so <laughs> detrimental using dirty, I would be so grateful. Well, so, I mean, first and foremost, anytime we put a negative label like that onto any medical diagnosis, the reaction to it on behalf of the patient inherently becomes avoidant. And that's something that can snowball into major, major, major chronic issues if not addressed appropriately. Mm-hmm. Some folks are like, I don't want this on my medical record. I don't want anybody to have the ability to find out that, you know, this is something that I'm living with or anything like that. And I try to remind folks, like, if you do not have collaborative and enthusiastic engagement of your providers, should you be somebody with multiple providers, it's it's life risking potentially of what could happen later down the road with untreated STIs. And the goal for STIs isn't even curative. We're, we're largely looking for daily maintenance and comfort values, more of a palliative measure rather than a curative thing. And so, I mean, I, I'm somebody who has comorbid issues. Like I have endometriosis and polycystic ovarian syndrome, and I have the genetic mutation for MSH6, which predisposes me to endometrial cancers. 
And so that's a whole fun thing going on. So me in particular, I have to be very careful about any type of screening that I do. I'm personally very thorough for my own sake because of those other health issues and the problems that spawn from that when they become more complicated than they already are. But, you know, the way that I've met people who kind of gatekeep with STI screening is very exclusive and ableist and classist, potentially racist. I mean, there's so much that goes into it that's just really, really unfortunate to say the absolute very least. You know, a lot of STIs can be asymptomatic. They can be very manageable. It, it doesn't have to be a death sentence, but what comes into that is making sure that you're being honest with yourself and your partners and your medical providers about your status so that you can receive that daily type of care if needed and Mm -hmm. ongoing screening. If for nobody else, then at least just you to celebrate the one body that you have and enabling it to function in the way that you need it to in order for you to thrive under your definitions. And um, when people talk about STIs, like people are less than or dirty or anything else like that, people don't seem to realize exactly how many people in the world exist and have great independence with an STI status. I think part of that is that there is that pervasive taboo that prevents people from being able to share comfortably their reality of having these diagnoses instead of the nightmare version of it, where people seem to think like only certain categories of people get STIs and they are somehow undesirable or less than desirable. Talk about your status. It's to your own consenting capacity. It's important to if nobody else, at least you, and could be life-changing for somebody else in their plan of care. Yeah. Yeah. And just their existence, Yes, <laughs> like just their existence. Like I know when I first got my herpes diagnosis, I was devastated. I got like a trigger warning right here. I got suicidal. severely severely suicidal within the first month of my diagnosis and I've had the diagnosis for seven years now and I am constantly educating and re-educating myself on it and I'm constantly educating my partners on it and anyone I interact with I end up educating them and I think it's partially why I ended up becoming a sexual health coach and because it's like, I, I'm already doing part of the education. Why not make it official? Yeah, <laughs> it's kind of deal. But you are 100% right. There is no good literacy out there. People are not educated on STIs. And the primary STIs that you can get are curable. Yes. Like the bacterial ones, they are, prim- they are curable. There are some that have some harder means to cure because they've developed um, antibiotic resistance, but that is to be expected with how people treat antibiotics. So when you had made that comment earlier, like you want people to have better antibiotic information and literacy, all I could think of was STI treatment. And I just like, no, go for it. (laughs) I I, I think of, have you seen the, the movie Mean Girls? Yes. And there's the coach or the gym teacher who has to teach sex ed. Oh, God. And he says something about, like, if you have sex, you will get AIDS and die. Yes. <laughs> that, that for some reason, as, as comedic and satirical as that is, like, that is typically the level of education that is, A, immediately available to folks, mm-hmm. but that's what sticks with them is that big, scary thing. Like you mm-hmm. said about your diagnosis, I had a, I guess I want to call it a near miss where I had a pap smear that came up questionable mm. and my doctor called me personally and she's like, oh, don't worry. It's not HPV. We did a whole PCR run on the cells. Um, it's just precancerous growth. And that was somehow better <laughs> than getting HPV. And I was like, 
Oh, you mean it's my endometrial cells being crazy again? Oh, okay. Sounds good. Um, yeah. Oh my God. But, um, yeah. <laughs> pap smears are a whole nother thing. And I used to work with Planned Parenthood. I don't know if I actually can say that or not, but I've said it on a couple other episodes, but I used to work for Planned Parenthood. And I remember making those phone calls and having patients just start crying. Yes. When like, when we don't even know for sure what the diagnosis is, and it's just like the initial or the second one or the first biopsy, it's like, I'm just here relying information. I am giving you the education that I've been permitted to give you. I'm trying to comfort you the best I can, but please do not freak out. We don't know what's actually going on just yet. And like people would freak out more with the HPV possibility than the cancerous possibility. Every phone call. Every phone call I had was something dealing with pap smears. People were more worried about the HPV versus the cancerous cells. And it's so bad at a community level that goes even beyond that primary care, where in my field of work, for example, more of that like hairy side of things, working with law enforcement and attorneys, is that in my clinical documentation, I can't even say that I tested somebody for STDs. I have to say that I treated them prophylactically due to the nature of alleged exposure because we have defense attorneys who will use that part of the medical record as uh, weaponized evidence against the patient in the court of law saying, hey, maybe this person's just embarrassed that they have an STD and that they want to blame my client for that. And um, it's something that is usually protected under rape shield laws, if and only if you have a prosecutor who's paying attention and a judge who's paying attention is also not in the bias of thinking that people with STDs are out to lie and deceive and take advantage of a system that is already pitted against them. Um, so it is so far beyond. Wow. Sorry. <laughs> no, don't, please, please don't apologize. It's just like, that's how impactful your statements are and how real they are. And that's information we need. Like listeners, I hope you have paid attention today because everything we were given today was education that we should be given anyway. <laughs> like seriously, this is stuff that we should know as civilians, as people living in this United States dystopian world that we're kind of in yes. right now. <laughs> we are kind of living in a dystopian novel. <laughs> um, but Orphne, like everything you've given us today has been absolute gold. This last little bit about STIs, SCI testing, and the destigmatization. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> okay, nailed it. <laughs> um, um, of STIs, it's just like, it's so important. And the fact that there is care for victims that your sexuality doesn't necessarily define who you are but it does like embracing yourself makes it easier to be yourself you defined everything i'm trying to do today <laughs> and everything i'm trying to do with this <laughs> you have been unapologetic you've been honest you've been forthright and you've given us more than i could have anticipated just by starting this out today so thank you Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, of course. I'm happy to be here. And I know that a lot of what I said is the, the very much TLDR, too long, didn't read, condensed, tiny versions of so much more. Um, so again, everything with a grain of salt, but I'm always so happy to share what I can um, for the greater good, even if it is dangerous. <laughs> um, I adore you and I'm just grateful to be here. So thank you. Of course. And uh, can you let us know where we can find you or get a hold of you if you're comfortable with people reaching out? Yeah, gosh, you know what? I don't really know. <laughs> um, I have an email address um, that I can use right off the bat. I unfortunately am not super active on social media that isn't immediately identifying of my private life. Um, 
but my email address is goblinqueen78 at gmail.com. I wasn't born in 1978. 13-year-old me just thought it was a great number. So um, I'm always happy to receive feedback or inquiry uh, through that email address. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I appreciate that. I I love and I, social media is its own own situation (laughs) and I will be sharing my links in the description I'll be sharing um Orphanies as well in the description below but thank you so much for everything today I am so grateful and everything you gave us has been amazing and I hope you have an amazing weekend (laughs) thank you I hope the same for you I hope you feel better (laughs) I just thank you for having me here Of course, of course. And we'll we'll talk to you soon. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon. And I hope you have a great week ahead of you as well. and it was so helpful. Here are the takeaways from the interview with Orphne, and that is there are resources available for those who have suffered an SA or sexual assault. I am going to have a couple links in my description below with some resources for those who have suffered a sexual assault for those in the United States. Number two, Work with the cops can be variable and that trauma-informed care is usually taught to the higher-ups, not necessarily the ones on the scenes, and that it is a hairy situation for those who are working directly with the with those who have suffered the sexual assault. And that there is education available to the cops that want to learn to be trauma-informed when dealing with those having intimate issues. I thought that was very helpful. Number three, sexual assault survivors are able to get help if asked. And I want to make this clear. I, As being someone who has been sexually assaulted, I have never reported my sexual assaults. And I know not many people are comfortable just because of, of re-victimization through the police and through the inherently white supremacist government that we have currently and just because of how our political climate is right now. However, I do believe that the resources that I said I was going to put below will hopefully help you going forward if you have suffered a sexual assault. Um, I want to just be able to give you some resources. Um, Number four, polyamory is beautiful and has many different forms. Me and Orphne discussed about kitchen table and how there are things like don't ask, don't tell and how they can affect relationships and how it's not necessarily a bad thing depending on the situation and depending on the level of communication, but don't ask, don't tell can be negative if you're not being honest about specific facts, especially if someone is suffering chronic illnesses. Um, which leads me to my next point. Number five, don't ask, don't tell can be very risky in polyam due to possibility of not disclosing SDI statuses. One thing I have learned and have been very grateful for, and we mentioned it briefly in this interview, is that within polyamory, the expectation is that you're going to have honest communication, including that of your STI statuses. STIs are not inherently bad or wrong or 
necessarily harmful. They can affect your health, but they can affect it even worse if you don't know there's a possibility you could have one. Most STIs are asymptomatic. Most of them are. So it's important that you get testing regularly, which brings me to my um, next point. STIs aren't dirty. And calling STIs dirty further stigmatizes them and makes it harder for people to discuss and get care for them. So I hope you will take it upon yourself to start having these hard conversations and start discussing STIs. And number seven, polyamory is about honesty, communication, and trust. I hope that is something that you gleaned from the conversation with Orphney, because I know that is something I felt from the conversation as well. And number eight is STI destigmatization should be a goal. I, I already touched on it earlier, so just please, please have those hard conversations. Talk about STIs the way you would talk about any other disease. It is something that's usually treatable, if not curable, depending on the type of STI. And almost all STIs at this point are treatable and you're able to live with them with minimal effects. So I hope you'll take this into consideration. And my final point is, and this is number nine, is consent is critical for your whole life. The one thing that I definitely gleaned and learned from this conversation with Orphney is that consent is so important. No one should have to do anything they don't want to or do not agree to. Sexual assault victims, you have the option to reach out to the police. If you do not want to, that is your prerogative. You are the only one who can consent to that. You are the only one who can consent to the examinations. You're the only one who can consent to what goes on with and around your body. You have full control. No one else can take that from you. You are strong. You are powerful. And if you are a sexual assault survivor, let me remind you that it was never your fault. It was only their fault. It is the assaulter's fault, not yours. Please, please remember that. And I also wanted to mention that um, it means so much to me that you've listened to my podcast to this point and that you're making it with me to the end of this, but I am very grateful for each and every one of you listening. And if you could just leave a five-star review or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, I read every one. Um, and it just, it helps my podcast so much and I would love to hear from you. So if you want to, if you want to reach out to me on Instagram at unapologetic sex with DG, I would love to hear from you. I also have a private Facebook group under the same name, and this is a place I've created it. So we have a safe space to discuss all of these tough topics and just make it open for you. It is sex work friendly and it is trans friendly and it is somewhere where I do not allow any racist or any cruelty within it. It is a safe space for a reason, so I hope you'll consider joining. It's Unapologetic Sex with DG is the name of the group. You should be able to find it. It is a private group and you have to answer all the questions to be accepted in the group. If you don't answer the questions, I won't accept you into the group. I also offer um, one-on-one sex and relationship coaching. So if that's something you're interested in, I will gladly talk to you about it. So reach out to me on any of those, or you can even reach out to me on Spotify. I would just love to hear from you, and I would love to know how you're enjoying my podcast because I am I can't believe it we're on episode seven already and I'm so glad you made it to the end with me um I just want to end it with one little fun fact about myself so 
one fun fact is I am deathly afraid of heights. So if you made it to the end, that is my one fun fact about myself. So I hope you folks have a wonderful day or night or whenever you're listening to this. And I hope you will take time today to treat yourself to living unapologetically for a minute, however that looks like for you. And I hope you will lean into loving your life and loving yourself unapologetically. Once again, I am DG, and this is the Unapologetic Sex with DG podcast. Thank you so much, and I love you all, and go out and spread some love.